Well, good morning, church. It's good to see you. Thanks for being here and worshiping with us today. If you're joining us online, thanks for joining us there as well. Um, Last fall, I shared with you a couple of foundations that guided the early church um, in, in, uh, in terms of its alignment with God and His purposes. And I shared those with you. What I wanted to do this morning is just begin our time by reviewing those with you. So again, you're reminded not just of the, the foundations of what guided and led the early church, but what still um, guides and leads us today in this church at South Hills. And so just let me just review with you these two foundations. They're critical. They're important to who we are at South Hills, what guides us. And the two things that guide us, our foundations, are the Bible and the gospel. The Bible is part of our foundation. That is, God's word is our final authority. So this is something that as a church, we say, hey, there's lots of voices um, that we could be listening to, but God's word stands above them all. God's word stands above my voice. God's God's word stands above the voice of our culture, um, our friends, YouTubers, whatever voices we're listening to, God's word stands above it all. It is our final authority, which is why we stand for the reading of Scripture. It reminds us, yes, God, we are under your authority. It's your voice that we want to hear and respond to in terms of how we live our life and be guided by you and your word. And this is why um, we don't want to just, you know, have a time on Sunday morning where we're responding to God's Word, but we're encouraging you this year to engage with us in reading God's Word on a daily basis. That it's not just God's Word and His authority on Sundays when you come, but every day you're saying, God, will you speak to me? I'm listening. Will you guide me? It's your Word that's in your voice that's my authority and how I live. And so we've invited you and encouraged you to read along with us in a Bible reading plan. And as part of that, we've asked you to do uh, just be looking and, and listening for those, those verses that pop out where God is speaking to you. And so we have out in the lobby, and it's mentioned before, those, uh, uh, Doreen and others will be taking pictures. And we're just inviting you and encouraging you to write a verse that you're saying, okay, God, you spoke to me this week. This is what you said. This is a verse that stood out. This is a passage that, that I'm hanging on, challenged me, encouraged me, guided me. We're just asking you to write those down, allow us to take a picture so that over the next month we begin to see more and more of our church family saying, look at how God is speaking to all of us. And I know that some of you are here and you're saying, I'm too cool for school. I don't want a picture taken. And because you're telling me, I'm not going to do it. And I'm just going to say, get over yourself, all right? Um, It's okay. Because you're not doing it for me. You're not doing it to earn points with God. You're just simply saying, God, it's your voice that's my authority. And I want to be responsive to you. So together as a church family, we're just simply saying, hey, God, you speak to us. We want to also recognize that, respond to it, and celebrate that together as a church. So God's word, our final authority, but also the gospel, which is our only hope, which is why I'm so excited about these new ministries that you heard Lily and Doreen talking about that are starting up, our middle school ministry, um, uh, young adult, new young adult ministry, um, life groups that are happening because the gospel of grace is our only hope. And the church is called to reproduce and to share that good news with others. And so I just invite you to join with us in praying for the gospel to only not only be responded to here, but then to be uh, shared uh, to, the, to the world and to the people around us. And so those are our foundations that we hang on to, God's word and the gospel. Now, when it comes to God's word, there's several ways that you can study God, the Bible. 
there's the most common way, which is you take a book of the Bible um, uh, and you say, okay, I'm going to read through the book. And what does it say? And, and what do I learn from it? Take Genesis, for instance. I'm going to read through the book. I'm going to study the book. I'm going to understand the book. So that's one of the ways, most common ways to study God's Word. Another way to study God's Word is to do what we did this last fall, which is we take a, a character in the Bible and say, okay, what, do we, what can we learn about the character of Moses? and his faith, and how God shaped him. We did that earlier in the year with Ruth, and Ruth is a book, but it's also a character study. It's an amazing woman and her faith, and so we, we focused in and said, okay, let's learn from a character. Another way that you can study God's Word is to take a topic and say, okay, what does the Bible have to say about this topic? For instance, finances. What does the Bible have to say about finances? Or marriage. What does God's Word have to say about marriage? And we can learn by simply saying, okay, let's do a study on this topic in Scripture. Another way to do Bible study is to take a single word and say, I'm going to trace this word and figure out all the places that it's used and why it's used and what it means. For instance, you could take the word grace and you can say, how is it used in scripture? Why is it used? And how can I respond to this incredible word grace and what it means? For some of you, that'd be a really helpful study. For some of you, you know someone that you'd like to suggest the study of grace to. <laughs> they go through the Bible and read it. They need a little help in that department. But the truth is we all need help in that department, don't we? Like my friend Mark shared this last week, all of us need to recognize we are in need of God's grace found through faith in Jesus Christ. And when we recognize and we respond to the grace that's been given to us through, through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, then it's on us to say, how can we reflect that grace to the world around us? And that's where it gets a little harder, doesn't it? It's one thing to say, I want to receive God's forgiveness and grace. It's a little harder when it comes to, I'm going to show forgiveness and grace to others. And that's why the passage we're going to look at today is very, very helpful. Because it's a passage that talks about grace. And it's an amazing story. It's found in um, the book Philemon. If you have your Bible, I want to encourage you to turn to Philemon. If you're not quite sure where it's at, we'll just kind of give you the, the, the books that are around it so you can find it. If you didn't bring a Bible, the book of Philemon is printed for you on the handout. And if you're thinking to yourself, wait, the book of Philemon is printed for me? Before you panic, thinking, oh my goodness, we're going to be here forever. We're going to go through a whole book. Let me just put you at ease for a moment, okay? It's just 25 verses. <laughs> it's the whole book. And so we're going to study the whole book of Philemon today. How great is that? You're going to have a whole book out of the Bible just today, 25 verses. It really is a letter. And in fact, it's more like a postcard that the Apostle Paul sends. And so that's what we get to look at today. And really, truly, an incredible and powerful um, story of grace. Uh, so let's take a moment, and what I want to do is I want to invite you to stand as we read God's Word again. We stand under His authority and His voice in our life. As we read this, I'll just, uh, as we go into this, I'll just mention that in the ancient world, um, when someone was writing a letter, they would often sign it at the beginning of the letter so you knew who it was coming from. Kind of be handy for us today, right? We have to kind of go back to the end of the letter, flip it over, see who it's from, and then flip back over and read it. In the ancient world, it was, hey, right up front, and that's what we see right here. This is a letter from the Apostle Paul. Let me read it for us, and then we'll take a closer look. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker, 
also to Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers, because I hear about your love for all his holy people and your faith in, his, in the Lord Jesus. I pray that your partnership with us in the faith may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the Lord's people. Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and ordered you to do what you ought to do, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. It is as... uh, It is as none other than Paul, an old man and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, that I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he has become useful both to you and to me. I am sending him, who is my very heart, back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I'm in chains for the gospel. But I did not want to do anything without your consent, so that any favor you do would not seem forced, but would be voluntary. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever. No longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dear to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner... Welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back. Not to mention that you owe me your very self. I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I ask. And one thing more, prepare a guest room for me because I hope to be restored to you in, uh, in answer to your prayers. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you greetings, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Okay, go ahead and have a seat. We'll take a look at this together. Now, before we just get started, I want to just take a moment to talk with you a little bit about the background and history of this book, because as we understand the background and history of this book, it will really become alive as we study it and look at it a little bit closer together. So um, I'll just begin by saying that the Apostle Paul, who wrote this letter, um, he wrote this letter to uh, Philemon and to this church in Colossae, and, and the Apostle Paul was instrumental, by the way, in planting this church. This church that's in Colossae, where this, is, this is, uh, letter was sent to, was a church plant uh, that came out of the ministry of the Apostle Paul. See, the church, from its inception, the whole, the, has, has been called to reproduce, and not just reproduce followers who are followers of Christ and who reproduce other followers of Christ, but that the church also reproduce churches, whole churches reproducing other churches. That is part of uh, God's will for the church. And so Paul, out of his ministry, he trained up people. He discipled others who became leaders and church leaders. And then as a result of that whole ministry, other churches got started. And so we see here a church plant that took place in this city, Colossae. 
And in this church plant, there's a guy by the name of Philemon who benefited and grew in this church and became a leader of this church. And we don't know a whole lot about Philemon, but there are some things that we do know, or at least some things that we can put together. One of the things that we kind of put together about Philemon is that he was likely a man who had a certain uh, degree of wealth or means. And we, we kind of put that together because he was a leader of this church, but we also know that the church that, that uh, was planted there in Colossae met in his home, that, which makes us think, well, maybe he had a little bit larger home uh, so that there was room for everyone to gather So this is a little bit of what we know about Philemon. We also know that Philemon, over the course of time, met a guy by the name of Onesimus. And we don't know the full backstory of how they met or what what that, the nature, the full nature of their relationship. But we do know this, that Onesimus is Philemon's slave. Now, when it comes to slavery, there's some things that would be helpful for you to know when it comes to first century, the first century Roman Empire. In the first century, the Roman Empire, slaves really were um, obtained in, in two primary ways. The first way was that slaves were acquired, and they were acquired by the Roman Empire as they conquered other nations. Most, most commonly, um, instead of killing those people in those nations, they would, then acquire, they would just acquire them to be slaves in their households and to work for them, and it was a, a major feature, a major part of the economy and the growth of the Roman Empire. So that's the first way they were acquired. The second way that you become a slave in the first century Roman Empire is that you found yourself in a place of financial need or financial debt, that there was some reversal in your finances and you got to a point where you could not pay it off, so you would sell yourself as a slave in order to pay off that debt. And because Onesimus has a Greek name, I don't think he was acquired as a slave um, from the conquering of other nations. I think he just got to a spot where he found himself in financial, uh, in financial trouble. And we don't, know again, know how that happened, whether it was just circumstances in his life or foolish choices that he made. We don't know if it was the people that he hung out with and, and the decisions that came out of that. We don't know if he got caught up in, in you know, alcohol or gambling. We just know that he got probably to a point where the debt was very, very great. He could not pay it off, and so he sold himself to be a slave to pay off that debt. And so he comes to Onesimus. We don't know if it was Onesimus that he owed the debt to, or he came to Onesimus, uh, sorry, he came to Philemon. We don't know if he came to Philemon because he owed a debt to him, or because Philemon um, needed to hire more hands to care for his estate. We don't know all of that, but we do know that he came into uh, being a slave, working for um, Philemon to pay off his debt. Now, when you're in debt, that is a difficult place to be. You feel the pressure of debt. You feel the humiliation, perhaps, of the debt that you owe. And at some point along the way, the pressure, the humiliation of the debt in Onesimus' life caused him to do something dramatic. He stole from Philemon, his master, and then he ran away. He took off with Philemon's money. Whatever he took, he took something and he took off. And a runaway slave, um, once you run away, there's no point in coming back because that would be a real danger to come back because slaves um, were, a, were a runaway slave, especially was considered a great danger. See, once you became a slave, 
in the first century Roman Empire, you were not considered a person anymore. You were considered, as Aristotle, uh, um, he called slaves uh, living tools. So you were no longer a person, you were a thing. And if you were a runaway slave, you're a dangerous thing. And the reason why you're a dangerous thing is because everyone in the Roman Empire would remember and have embedded in their minds the event that took place at uh, 73 B.C. In 73 B.C., there was a slave, uh, a Roman slave, who stood up and says, I'm not a living tool. I am a man. And as a result of him saying, I have dignity as a man, he's saying to the other slaves around him, you're a man, you're a woman, you're not a thing, as Aristotle says. And, and he led a revolt, and 70,000 slaves revolted. And um, as a result of that, there was, there was great um, uh, fear that gripped the Roman Empire. The, the man who stood up, that one slave, was a former gladiator, and his name was Spartacus. Perhaps you've heard the name. If you're wondering, what does Spartacus look like? Probably a lot like me, you know? <laughs> That's what I picture. Strong, powerful, big, just to help you with some framing of the history, okay? <laughs> Regardless of what Spartacus looks like, he was a former gladiator, a slave who stood up, who led this revolt, and it really did grip fear in the, the Roman Empire because the Roman Empire um, there, was, there was a massive amount of slaves in the Roman Empire. It's estimated that one out of every three people was a, was a slave. Well, virtually every Roman household had a slave. Um, 60 million slaves in, in the, the Roman Empire at that time. And so a slave revolt, a rebellion, was a very dangerous thing. And in fact, after they were able to kind of quash the rebellion, um, it took two years to subdue uh, Spartacus. Was once he in, was killed uh, and the, the rebellion was, was uh, dampened, they took the Roman Empire to make sure that this would never happen again. They took 6,000 of what they deemed to be the ringleaders, leaders, leaders of that rebellion. They took 6,000 of the slaves, men and women, and they went to a road, a stretch of road, a 130-mile stretch of a prominent road that led into Rome. And they took those 6,000 slaves and they lined them up and they crucified them along that 130-mile stretch so that it would be clear in every, everyone's mind, this is what happens to a runaway slave. This is what happens when you're, you rebel in, in slavery. And so, because they never wanted this to happen again. And so it was that if you're a runaway slave, if you rebelled, revolted, that you're taking your life in your own hands. Because if you came back, you're, it would well be, be within the right of the owner to have you executed. But even if you did live, you would still be branded a slave forever. And not just um, figuratively, but literally branded. They would brand, if you were, you were caught as a slave who was a runaway, and they they choose to, chose to let you live, they would take a hot iron and brand the letter F into your forehead. It would be deep, uh, permanent scarring. F for fugitos, uh, which is the Greek word for fugitive, where we get the word fugitive. And so it, was, it would always be known and branded as a slave. No one would trust you. Everyone would be skeptical of you. That would be something you would carry with you for the rest of your life. So no sense in coming back, right? So Onesimus runs away. And he runs all the way from Colossae, which is in Asia Minor, all the way to the capital city, Rome, because he's thinking, okay, in Rome, lots of crowds, lots of people, it'll be a place where I can hide out and not be found. But here's the interesting thing. When we run, well, sometimes we forget that God still runs the world, right? 
you maybe found yourself running, doing your own thing, and then stopping and realizing, okay, God, you're still in charge. Because somehow in God's sovereignty, he brought uh, uh, Onesimus and nudged him and worked in, you know, worked in different ways so that it brought him to an encounter with a guy by the name of Apostle Paul, who was also in Rome in chains, chained to a Roman guard. And we don't know how that happened. We don't know if Onesimus was a you know, domestic servant or so, for whatever reason. He, we just know that he came into contact with the Apostle Paul, and the Apostle Paul did what only Apostle Paul can do. What does he do? He tells him about Jesus. He tells him about the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And as a result of that, Onesimus gives his life to Christ, and he's transformed And now the Apostle Paul has this very interesting dilemma on his hands. What do you do with a runaway slave? Particularly, what do you do with a a runaway slave who's had his heart changed by the gospel, the good news of grace of Jesus Christ, but still has a past, a history that needs to be dealt with? Paul's solution is the book of Philemon. What Paul did was he um, wrote a letter or had it penned a letter that would be written and, and sent to Philemon. And it's a beautiful letter. And if, in fact, if you, it was written in Greek, you'd see it just fits perfectly on one sheet of papyri, which was the ancient you know, paper that they would use for their writing. He had this letter written. He rolled it up. He handed it to Onesimus and says, go back to Philemon. Can you imagine what was going on in Onesimus's heart? Going, ugh, I have to go back? And the fear that he might have in terms of facing a former employer, former master that he stole from and ran away from. And he has to make that long trek from Rome all the way to Colossae. And lots of time to think about it. It's hard to, hard to understand maybe all the things that were going through his mind in that trip. It's equally hard to understand what might be going through Philemon's mind. Philemon um, had uh, something stolen from him. We don't know what. But I don't know about you, but if you've ever had anything stolen from you, it's incredibly violating, isn't it? And so you feel that, but then you also have someone who, who uh, ran away from him, betrayed his trust. And if you've been in a spot where you've had someone who you trusted or you brought in who's betrayed you and hurt you, that wound doesn't quickly go away, does it? And so it was that Philemon on the day he is looking out over the horizon, he sees a silhouette coming over across the field. He's looking and he's talking to his wife and he says, man, that guy, he walks a lot like that loser Onesimus. And then that guy keeps getting a little closer and he keeps looking and he says, you know what? That is Onesimus. That is the thief. That is the runaway. And then much to his surprise, Onesimus doesn't keep walking by, but instead instead walks right up to Philemon. And Philemon probably looks at him and says, what, are you here to rip me off again? But Onesimus doesn't respond. Instead, he hands him a scroll. And Philemon opens the scroll and begins to read. This is what it says. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker. Verse 2. Also to Aphia, our sister and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home. So it's to uh, Philemon, but Aphia, most people 
believe it's, it's a Mrs. Philemon. This is his wife that's there. And Archippus, many people believe, is Philemon and Aphia's son, who also became a prominent leader in the church. And so he's reading it, and he says, ah, this is, this is, this is written to me. And he's probably looking at Onesimus saying, did you steal this too? But then he reads on. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He's, yeah, this is exactly how Paul writes. He's looking to Aphia, he's looking at his wife, and says, yeah, here's a letter from Paul. How did Onesimus get this? It's all this going in through his mind. And it's interesting. He's looking at probably Onesimus going, what's going on? I picture it this way at least. But here's the interesting thing. In the ancient world, they would always read out loud. And so he continues to read. And he's probably reading out loud. And he says this, I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers because I hear about your love for all his holy people and your faith in the Lord Jesus. And Philemon's thinking to herself, man, Paul is amazing. He's the guy in prison, in chains, and he's praying for us. We're the ones that ought to be praying and are praying for him because he's a prisoner in chains. But this is Paul. He's praying for us, even though he's in chains. What an amazing guy. Then, verse 6, I pray that your partnership with us in the faith may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. So he points out, he's saying, I'm praying for your partnership. And finally, he's saying, yeah, we're partners, man. Paul has been so instrumental in the life of this church and in my life and my faith. And he's calling me a partner. And he's thinking to himself, he's calling me to have a deepened understanding of what all that God has shared and the sake of, uh, that we share with others because of the sake of Christ. And he's thinking to himself, man, Paul has shared so much with me. He's given me so much. I mean, what would it be that, I could call, that he would call upon me to give and to share in return for the sake of Christ? And then he reads on. Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the Lord's people. So he, again, is great, giving great encouragement. You hear Paul kind of, you know, softening him up a little bit here in this letter. I think it's so great. You know, the Apostle Paul, who, you know, is so direct and so strong in many ways, here he learns a, uh, there's a sense of tact and delicacy that he, uh, in his approach when we were studying this passage as a teaching team, Doug, our middle school pastor, said, I think maybe uh, Paul had spent um, enough time with Barnabas that it was rubbing off on him. That sense of more the tenderness. And maybe that's true. And I think probably so, along with God's grace, you hear him just saying, hey, there's encouragement and joy. And he's saying, if, uh, uh, you've refreshed me in, in, in hearts of the Lord's people. Then he reads on. Therefore, um, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what I have to do. So Paul, it does say, hey, I could pull out my apostle ID card and be really strong-handed and say, this is what you need to do. But he said, I'm not going to do that. This is what I'm going to do instead. Yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. So he's saying, this is my approach. I'm coming to you as a brother, as a partner. I'm not I'm not coming so strong. I'm coming you and appealing on the basis of love. And then he says, it is none other than Paul, an old man, and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus. I mean, come on. You wouldn't refuse an old man, would you? Right? And especially an old man who's in chains, in prison. So you, you hear the buildup here from the Apostle Paul talking to Philemon, in this letter. And Philemon's listening, going, okay, so, so, well, yeah, for sure, Paul. What is it? And he reads on, verse 10, that I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. And this is, this is powerful, because when, when the apostle Paul says and uses the phrase, my son, 
This he uses only for those who have, he has brought to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ through his own personal ministry. And so Philemon's probably skeptical in the back of his mind. Uh, my guess is that he's not buying it. And so he's looking at, uh, uh, Philemon's looking at Onesimus and saying, what, did you con Paul into thinking you're a Christian too? You know, some of that bitterness and that, that sense of like distrust that's still there for Philemon as he's reading this. But, but Paul says, no, he's my son. He's, he's a son in the faith. Then he says this in verse 11, 11, formerly he was useless to you, but now he has become useful both to you and to me. The word useless, it's an interesting thing. Um, uh, Onesimus in Greek means useful. And so he's kind of using a play on words here. He's saying useful, Onesimus, was useless to you, but now he can be useful again. And so he's kind of using a play on words here, and he's talking about uh, Onesimus in this sense. And then he reads on in verse 12, I am sending him who is my very heart back to you. As Philemon's reading this, he's thinking, your very heart? I mean, and now he's beginning to say, well, maybe this is true. I mean, you, it'd be hard to fool the apostle Paul, really, right? I mean, he's, this is incredible. He's saying, who is my very heart? I'm sending him back to you. Then he reads on verse 13. I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I'm in chains for the gospel. So I'd love to keep him here, but I'm sending him back. Why? Verse 14, he says this, but I did not want to do anything without your consent so that any favor you do would not be seen forced, but would be voluntary. So he said, I'm sending him back to you. I'm not forcing this, but this is my appeal. Verse 15 says this, perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever. So Paul just says, hey, let's step back for a moment, Philemon, recognize, remember God's sovereign, that God's in control. He runs the world, even runaway slaves. And he's saying, maybe this is a God thing, that he ran away so that he could encounter me come to faith in Jesus Christ, be transformed, and come back to you. He's saying, let's not miss God in the big picture of things, which is so great that he pulls back the layers and says, let's look at the big picture. Then verse 16, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He's very dear to me, but even dear to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. And so he's saying, listen, um, he's special uh, to me but even more special to you because he was uh, in your household and now he's, he's uh, being returned to you as a brother in the Lord. And at this point, my guess is Philemon's thinking to himself, okay, I'm hearing you, Paul. I'm hearing what Paul is saying. So he probably looks to, to his wife and says, okay, if, if Paul says we need to bring him back, let's bring him back. And so he's saying, listen, um, Aphia, why don't you go check the slave quarters and see if we have a room for um, Onesimus back in our slave quarters. But then he reads this next verse. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. And Aphia says, "Uh, honey, if the apostle Paul was coming, we probably wouldn't put him in the slave quarters. If the apostle Paul was coming, and if he's saying welcome Onesimus as you would welcome me, we'd be putting up the best room for, uh, for Onesimus if, if it was Paul. And Philemon says, ah, oh, no, but here's the difference. The apostle Paul never stole from me. But then he reads the next verse. If he has done, any, if done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. 
Then the Apostle Paul, taking the pen out of the hand of the writer who was writing, dictating this letter for him, continues, and he writes this in his own hands. He says, I, Paul, am writing with my own hand. I will pay it back. And then he adds, not to mention, go ahead, go back to verse 19, not to mention that you owe me your very self. Isn't that great? <laughs> the Apostle Paul says, I'm not going to bring up the fact that, you know, the whole church plant and your faith, all because of my ministry and all that kind of stuff. I'm not going to bring any of that stuff up. But it's still there. <laughs> Let me remind you in a, in a subtle way, right? And there's this beautiful, beautiful picture um, that he, uh, he says, that he says, I will pay it back. Isn't that amazing? This is God's grace. This is God's grace. When Martin Luther read this, this passage, this book, he made this incredible statement. He said, all of us, all of us are God's Onesimus. All of us are runaway slaves. All of us have stolen, trying to take God's glory. All of us have run away, tried to hide from God, been, been rebellious. Each and every one of us is in that place. But God in his grace through Jesus Christ. Jesus comes to us and he brings us back to the Father. And he says to the Father, see this man, see this woman, will you welcome them back as you would welcome me? And that whole statement is, would you welcome them into the family? That's what Jesus says on our behalf. And God the Father says, well, there's still some scores to settle here. But then again, it's Jesus who steps forward and says, ah, yeah, if this this guy owes you anything, if this woman has done anything wrong, I'll pay. Charge it to my account. This is the grace of God for us. This is what Jesus did for us. He died on the cross for our sins. Not that we deserved it, not that we did anything to earn it, because of it's his very nature to be gracious and loving and to bestow upon us his grace. That's what God did for us through Jesus Christ. But the amazing thing about this passage is that we see God's grace so clearly displayed, but it's not through the life of Jesus. It's displayed through the life of Paul. Do you see that? It's Paul that's displaying grace. And let me remind you, where did Paul start? He started as a bounty hunter, hunter who was killing Christians. Do you remember that? And he encountered Jesus Christ. His life was radically changed by the grace of Jesus Christ. And now all of a sudden, he's writing scripture that Christians read. Isn't that amazing? The grace of God changed him. And as he responded to the grace of God, then he had to step forward and say, how can I reflect the grace of God to the lives of others around me? And this is what grace does, right? If we respond to God's grace, it shortens the distance between us and God. But when we reflect the grace of God to others, it also closes the distance between us and others. They were called not just to respond to the grace of God, but to reflect it to others. And if we do anything less than be responsive in reflecting the grace of God to others, um, it's religion, and God has, doesn't want anything to do with that. But in fact, He wants us to receive it and reflect it. 
That's what, that's what grace is, and that's what he called us to do. Then Paul, he's not done. He goes on, he says this, I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. And so he's saying, listen, I want my heart to be refreshed by your also um, receiving this and, and doing something about it, reflecting that grace to others. Verse 21, it says this, confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I ask. The apostle Paul's saying, hey, listen, grace goes above and beyond, Right? The law is a command. That goes only so far, but grace goes beyond that. He's saying, I'm confident of your grace, not only receiving Onesimus back into your home, but to giving him more above and beyond. Because there is a, there's a part of all of us who say, well, I'll forgive, I'll be gracious, but I'm not going to like it, right? We've all felt that before, haven't we? But this is where Paul is saying, hey, listen, I'm going to have you and ask you to give above and beyond because that's what real true grace is. But then he says, hey, but listen, that's not it. One more thing. Prepare a guest room for me because I hope to be, be restored to you in answer to your prayers. And I love this, the, uh, the Apostle Paul's optimism. Hey, I'm hoping to get out of prison soon and I'll come visit you. It'll be great. And then part of that for Philemon is going, oh man, Paul might be coming visiting. He's going to be checking on me. So again, <laughs> there's a little sense of, okay, I better uh, follow, follow through on this. Then verse 23, uh, he wants Philemon to know that he's not forgotten by the others who are there with Paul. He says, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ, Jesus, send you his greetings, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow workers. So he's sending, they're all sending their greetings, and then he closes with this. He says this, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. What an incredible close. Here's the deal. If we've received God's grace, responded to God's grace in our life, it doesn't just bring us closer to Him, but we're also called to reflect it to the people around us so that we can bring close, us closer to, to those people as well. Not just shortening the distance between us and God, but closing the distance between us and others. But in order to do that, it takes the hard work of forgiveness, doesn't it? And forgiveness is hard work. For some of you, you know what it's like to have someone very close to you. Maybe it was a family member who has wounded you deeply. And it's very difficult to, to get past that wound. Some of you know what it's like to have a coworker, someone who was a partner with you, whose, whose heart turned, or a friend, maybe someone who was closer than a family member, a person you opened your heart up to, and things turned, things shifted, and they ran away with your heart, and you said, never again will that take place. And you, you know the pain and the difficulty of forgiveness. But God's grace calls us to forgive we got to forgive. And it's hard work. I know all the excuses. Trust me, I've tried them all. I know. I know all the excuses, the excuse that it is hard. And let me tell you, yes, forgiveness is hard. It is hard work. In fact, it is an unnatural act. Do you know that? Forgiveness. You know what the natural act is? Vengeance. We're pretty good at that, aren't we? We can think of lots of ways to get revenge. That's natural. The unnatural act is forgiveness. That's the hard part. But it's so unnatural that we have to have it be supernatural. That is, we come to God and we say, God, we need your help because we cannot do this naturally on our own because it is so hard and the wound is so deep. I know that sometimes you might say, well, suppose the person that I want to forgive, um, I need to forgive, uh, doesn't want to be forgiven. And I'll just say, well, you know what? Onesimus in this passage isn't coming to uh, Philemon for forgiveness. It's the apostle Paul who's going to Philemon and saying, you need to forgive. Sometimes people don't want to be forgiven, 
But it's the Apostle Paul who steps in Philemon and says, you forgive anyway. This is what you're called to do. Some of you say, well, I mean, suppose the, you know, the, the, the person I'm, I want to forgive, they don't change. You ever felt that? Well, if I forgive them, they're not going to change anyway. And you feel that excuse? You feel that challenge? Feel that problem? If I forgive them, they won't change. And in that response, I'd just say, you're right. They may not change. They, they, they may not. You might forgive someone. They may not change. But if, in that whole process, you might have a better understanding of how God is with us, that he forgives us and then waits for us to respond, waits for us to respond, waits for us to respond. You may say, well, if I forgive, no one changes. And to that, I would disagree. Because real change happens in the life of the forgiver who, who forgives someone else. So often, the person that we're forgiving, they may, not for, they may not respond. They may not change. And it would be so much better if they did, right? But so often, they may not. But the person that can be changed, the only person that you control is you. And the only work you can do is forgive. And so real healing, maybe the only real healing, takes place in the person who is forgiving. And that's you. And so the Apostle Paul says, hey, you need to forgive. And then at the same time, there are certain people who cannot move forward unless they're forgiven. Some of you here, you love history. And if you're familiar with now, early church history, you may be familiar with the, the name Ignatius. St. Ignatius of Antioch, as he became known as, he entered into this region of Colossae about a generation after this letter was written. And he uh, was in that, that region at that time where he was, uh, he was taken and um, he was brought in to be executed for his faith in Jesus Christ. And on the journey because he was being brought to Rome to be executed, to be martyred for his faith. On that journey, he wrote a number of letters of encouragement to various churches and church leaders. Those letters have been collected, the letters of Ignatius. And among those letters is a letter that he wrote to uh, the bishop who was residing over uh, the region of Colossae. And he, in that letter, it's a beautiful letter where he commends the bishop for his faith and for his character, and for the influence that he has. And the bishop that he was writing to was a man named Onesimus, a runaway slave. See, sometimes we can't experience change until we are forgiven. But this, again, is the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's take a moment and let's pray together. As we come before the presence of the Lord, this is just a moment between you and him, and maybe it's a moment for you to just stop and confess the very same thing that Martin Luther confessed when he read this passage. Martin Luther saw this passage, and he confessed, Lord, all of us are runaways. All of us have rebelled. All of us are thieves. All of us have stolen and tried to hide from you. And maybe it's an opportunity for you to confess that I've been running. And maybe it's a moment for you to confess and say, I've been a slave and I've been a slave to the things in my life for far too long and I need freedom and hope and help. And the only way to receive that is to come to Jesus.
and experience his grace and mercy in your life. And so I just invite you right now, maybe for the first time, maybe for for the thousandth time, to come before the Lord Jesus Christ and say, God, I've been running. And I've, I've got a burden, a weight of sin that I've been carrying with me, and I, I need your forgiveness and grace in my life. You lay that at the feet of Jesus. Put your faith and trust in him. The fact that he says, I'll pay it all. Whatever is owed, charge it to my account. That's what Jesus did on the cross. This might be that moment for you to say, God, thank you, and I trust you to pay for the penalty of my sins to give me freedom, to show me grace. You pray that prayer, he promises to pay it and to pay it all. And maybe you're here and and this time as you hear this passage, it's, it's not that you've been running like Onesimus, but you're in a spot like Philemon where there's people in your life you know you need to forgive. And it's not a natural act So you need to come and say, God, I need your supernatural help in this arena. And maybe now is that moment to say, God, will you help me? Will you give me your strength? Give me the ability to forgive those who I need to forgive. Will you release me from that pain, the burden that I've been carrying, the bitterness that I've been holding on to? That maybe, Lord, you might change them but that you also may change me. You pray that prayer, he'll hear you. God, again, we just thank you for your word and that guides us and leads us. We thank you for your promises, your promises to show us grace and mercy and love. It's your nature, and God, we're grateful for that. And Lord, help us to be a church that as we receive and respond to your grace, that you would help us by your power to be people who reflect your grace to the world around us. God, we pray this in your name, amen.